Welcome to Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2020. My name is Amato, and with me are... Tori. And Dom. And Julia. Yes, my sister Julia is joining us tonight as a very special guest. And for the occasion, I've pulled up what is currently the record for the oldest piece of fanfiction we've done. Is it now? I don't think we've done anything prior to 1895 yet. No, we have not. This is from 1895. Specifically, it's called A New Alice in the Old Wonderland, and it's an un... Uh, what do we call it? Unauthorized Alice sequel? <laughs> it's called a fan fiction, Amato. <laughs> They're not really trying to hide it. Hide it. New <laughs> Alice. No, I was very amused at the start of it. There's, like, a little poem, you know, intro thing. And basically what it comes down to in, like, you know, six little verses is, we do not own Alice, please don't sue. <laughs> yes they don't go as far as to say comments uh, and reviews are appreciated <laughs> or original character do not steal right but yeah. it's really what it comes down to uh spare us gentle critic if you can is their last line it's quite cute actually yeah this uh before we talk a little bit more about the work we should stop in and talk about alice itself a little bit so julia as our guest why don't you start off what's your background with lewis carroll's stuff I like it. (laughs) Good start. I have uh, read the Alice book several times. I have Martin Gardner's annotation. I have the annotated uh, Snark, which is not Martin Gardner. Um, I have uh, an Alice tarot deck, which uh, kind of reproduces the Tenniel illustrations that are so famous, which we'll be talking about in this book, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in the context of the kind of the Waitsmith card design, and it's quite amusing. Um, this must have gone back for a while because I distinctly remember as a young teen, like when I was a young teen, you convincing me to memorize the Jabberwocky for some reason, and I did, <laughs> that, and I think I still do. That seems plausible. <laughs> um, I think the two poems that I have fully memorized are Jabberwocky and um, The Walrus and the Carpenter. You have The Walrus and the Carpenter. I always get lost pretty soon into The Walrus and the Carpenter. <laughs> I, I may or may not be able to recite it perfectly, but I've got most of it. Better than, you know, the Alices do. In any of these books. Yeah, quite impressive. Are you working on memorizing The Hunting of the Snark? I thought about it, and I have, like, the first two or three verses, but no, probably not. (laughs) A little bit on the long side. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about you, Tori? Um, English major. I, uh... No, I actually think I read, you know, obviously I saw the Disney movie first when I was quite young, um, but, you know, I, I read the, you know, the, the, the books, like, I guess, they're more novella length, right? Like, Through the Looking Glass and Alice Adventures. But, yeah, I read the books probably as, like, a 10-year-old and, again, as a teen, probably, again, in my early 20s. But I will admit it's been a minute. Um, but I was, you know, reading them especially, I think, as a teenager um, after I got into, like, the Beat Poets and was like really enchanted with like anything kind of bizarre and fantastical and which contained some sort of social commentary. I was super into it. Um, And I did endeavor to memorize the Jabberwocky at one point. It just, it was really enchanting to me, I guess, this world. But I, I will say that 
in reading this, it kind of made me remember like how much of it, I guess, didn't make sense to me as a young person. Like that was part of the enchantment for sure is I'm not sure what's happening, but um, in returning to this idea of Alice, I was like, oh, well, you know, kind of parsing it, there's this bizarre, the, like this absurdity. And I've actually been, you know, really interested in absurdism since my like uh, early 20s probably. So like returning to it in that light is, is pretty nice. Like you kind of see where the, the parts of it that make sense come in and the parts of it that deliberately don't make sense are, are a piece of it as well. And that reminds me that uh, I was a math major and I'm coming to a lot of this from that perspective. I was going to ask who's more likely to be obsessed with Lewis Carroll, the English major or the math major? Right. So right. back sure. in middle school, I think we had this World of Mathematics box set that republished, among other things, uh, Lewis Carroll's What Achilles Said to the Tortoise, which I suppose we could even consider to be something like Zeno's Paradox fan fiction. I've had it on my list, but I just don't think we can talk about it for any length of time. <laughs> yeah. But so that's the kind of Lewis Carroll absurdism that I have closest to my heart is the the logical and even mathematical mm. directions that he takes at. And um, we can talk about the extent to which this book captures or fails to capture that (laughs) and Tori your comments also made me think yeah just like I I also remember reading it as a kid and there's the confusion because of the nonsense and there's confusion because of the lack of context and so I remember just being very confused with the Alice and the Caterpillar like whole conversation where she has all of these she's supposed to have all these poems at her command and Mm. That, in theory, kind of would have made sense to me, because like I'm familiar with like Mother Goose rhymes and stuff, except that I hadn't heard of any of the poems that she is supposed to have memorized that right, like right. are apparently... So I wasn't sure whether, to what extent the poems were wrong to begin with, or like to what extent it's natural that she should know them, or like I just had no clue. Yeah. Would you like me to... I did find, and it's quite short, um, How Doth the Little Busy Bee. Oh, the original? Which is horrible. Um, and both of these books are going to make fun of it, not just Lewis Carroll's, but also this new Alice. Oh, I don't remember um, the busy bumblebee part in this, but... Oh, um, Yeah, give us some context then. What's the original? So the original is this horrible little moralizing piece. How doth the little busy bee improve each shining hour, and gather honey all the day from every opening flower? How skillfully she builds her cell, how neat she spreads the wax, and labors hard to store it well with the sweet food that she makes. In works of labor or of skill, I would be busy too, for Satan finds some mischief mm-hmm. still for idle hands to do. <laughs> In books or work or healthful play, let my first years be past, that I may give for every day some good account at last. And so, of course, in Lewis Carroll, this turns into How how Doth the Little Crocodile. Um, Right. I remember that. Yeah. Which everybody knows better than this at this point. (laughs) Certainly. Like, who's like, ah, yes, the labor of the busy bee, and I shall endeavor not to be Satan's hand. It's funny hearing such Protestant work ethic. Uh, Like, I don't know exactly Lewis Carroll's affiliation of Christianity, but it wasn't... Church of England? Was he? I, I don't know. Uh, there's some well, biographical detail there, I think. But, yeah, he's um, a deacon. Not a priest, but like, yeah. did training for as a priest. I forget. Anyway, Dom, how many Lewis Carroll poems do you have memorized? Three? <laughs> uh, At my, least one, right? My mom is a fan of it, and I believe would quote 
Wallace and the Carpenter, although I don't believe correctly. <laughs> so, like, maybe 0.5? <laughs> oh, I think I might also have most of your old Father William. Oh, I Which remember is quite a bit of that, too. Yeah, it definitely is. <laughs> For Wallace and the Carpenter, my favorite part is they wept like anything to see such quantities of sand. Uh, for some, if only this were cleared away, they said, it would be grand. And that's like the one line that sticks with me. <laughs> I've got about that much of the hunting of the snark, too. I've got like one or two lines that may have been from the movie. <laughs> do you know if you've ever read the books? I do know, and the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I guess I could have asked, have you ever read the books? I have not, no. <laughs> I just thought maybe it was like if you read it as a kid. No, and... I saw there's a bunch of stuff like if you read as a kid or as a project or like mm-hmm. in that middle period between now and kid that you kind of just lost to time. You're like, I feel like I read that, but maybe I just absorbed some of it. Maybe I just feel like I should have. And <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. So we've got the whole range here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm somewhere in between you and Julia and Tori because I've, I've read them all. I've definitely read Through the Looking Glass exactly one time and no more. And... Adventures in Wonderland maybe a couple of times. I've seen the Disney movie maybe twice, and I read The Hunting of the Snark, which is more mm-hmm. than some people can say. That's that's really about it. But I feel like I had enough to appreciate this fanfic. I feel like I didn't have to read much because I could just ask you to recite the Jabberwocky, and that's all I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure I have all the pronunciation right in the Jabberwocky, <laughs> even though I think Humpty Dumpty <laughs> tells you how to... No, does he tell you how to say all the things? I... Not. Yes, but only like the first verse. Yeah, I was gonna say okay. it off. Like figure out the, the rest of it. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, if we would like to know Lewis Carroll's like relationship with spirituality and faith, I have it here. Um, his father was a, a respected and conservative in the Anglican Church, and he was a deacon of Christ Church, Oxford, where he taught mathematics and logic. Right. So I understand it was kind of like yeah. a, you know, cool, oddball, mathematician, mm. hangout type place. So I'm sure they probably had a lot of disdain for how doth the busy bumblebee. Right. <laughs> and, yeah, there's also <laughs> some mention in this particular article of how he, uh, you know, he was moralizing, but it kind of not necessarily in a strictly religious way, just that he took the moral teachings of the church that he found to be important, which I think is pretty evident in his work. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this particular uh, fanfic, you know, actually published for profit by someone named, some publisher named J.B. Lippincott. This fanfic was published, hardcover, 1895. Mm-hmm. And that was when Lewis Carroll was still alive. He died pretty young, but I think it was like three years later. Mm-hmm. And I found some maybe like not properly sourced article online that claimed that Carol was aware of it and did not approve, but like dis- declined to litigate or anything because he didn't want to disturb his privacy or you know get involved. Think as uh, involved as with the Lupin Holmes fiasco, right? <laughs> didn't take as much offense as that. It wasn't the new character who was cooler than Alice. <laughs> no, no, this character is less cool than Alice. That's a good start. The character is less cool than Alice, but should we dive into it? Yeah, we may as well. Yeah. The thing that strikes me about the uh, framing device, even though the author was somebody who's also uh, supposedly composing for children, um, the the framing device reads to me very much like a modern self-insertion fanfic. Uh, and mm. so original character do not steal is something that I very much would have 
expected to see at the mm. front. <laughs> Just in the sense of, this is somebody who is fluent in the source material, as set up uh, mm -hmm. in the opening chapter, um, is reading through it, falls asleep, and uh, finds herself traveling there um, in order specifically to meet absolutely everybody who she remembers <laughs> yes. liking from the story uh -huh. and interact with them. And they mostly yeah. all get along, too. Like, Yeah, that might be... Yeah, I, I would say that the characters are less mean to this Alice. They definitely are. Which Even... is a little bit of a flaw because she's also, I think, less likable. <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, I agree that they're less mean, but I also agree that in the times that they are mean, this Alice, who is a new Alice... Is it, it, she's in, you know inspired by the old Alice, but she's a new person, uh, a different Alice. Is she just laughs it off because she accepts it as a part of the you know Wonderland she's familiar yes, with? Yes, I want to talk about that too. Yes, yeah. I feel like oh, okay. Let's back up a little bit to the frame story because we didn't really finish it. Uh, yeah, it was apparently a mother daughter team. It appears that the the mother, the author Anna Richards told more Wonderland stories to her kids who demanded more Wonderland stories, and once their kids were grown, one of the daughters did the illustrations, and she later became a well-known author of some kind. Um, not a well-known author, well-known artist yeah. under the name um, Anna... Wait. No, Alice, they... Anna Richards Brewster. Oh. So you and... can look them up. The, the illustrations actually are really reminiscent of the original illustrations that I recall. They're reminiscent of Tenniel without being, I think, slavish recreations of them. And, no. and really, I think they quite work. Yeah, I think all the illustrations are a high point of this. And, um, and as for the frame story, right, so we've got a new Alice. I forget her last name. And by a new Alice, she's a girl named Alice. Alice Lee. Alice Lee. And she's a fan of the Alice books by Lewis Carroll. And if I recall correctly, she's American, correct? She is American. Hmm. The author's American and Alice Lee is American. Okay. Uh, because they talk about, like, oh, some people, some friends going on vacation in France, and the mother mentioned something about having to cross the Atlantic to do that. Yeah. Like, they're right. definitely... It was uh, a bad time of year to cross the Atlantic. Yeah. I, I guess the text, by the text, they could be Canadian, but given that the authors were American, we're just going to assume. Mm. Sure. Um, and anyway, she, there's some back and forth with like her brother, but it doesn't really matter. What it comes down to is she rereads the Alice books, and then she goes to sleep, and she wakes up, and there's like a little door that leads into Wonderland, yeah. right? Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that because she wakes up, sneakily eats half of the cake that she's yeah. supposedly saving for tomorrow. Oh, right. And then perceives herself to be failing to fall back asleep, and that's when the door opens up. Very Actually, little Nemo and uh, Slumberland, right? Yeah, yeah. A bit of it, undigested... Wait a lot. Yeah, uh, rare, rare, rare bit. Rare, rare bit, bit yeah. 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 It's quite that, and I thought this was pretty cute because like, she receives a piece of wedding cake in the mail, and she's already talking about being enchanted with this idea of, you know, fantasy, and she's like, oh, a wedding, that's fantastical. She's supposed to, you know, save the cake to share... And instead, she eats it half in the night and has her fantastic She does leave the other half of her brother, which is something. She manages, yes. She, <laughs> she's, which, she wants to, but I, I kind of get this impression that she might have eaten the rest of it. Because she's very tempted, and she keeps closing the box and like opening it. That she might have eaten it had she not fallen into Wonderland again. You know, or for the first time. 
Yes, and and the closing line of this uh, section right before the Wonderland section starts is, she was just beginning to be rather sorry for more than one reason that she had eaten so much cake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's a little bit... um, I wouldn't say... I I guess like Through the Looking Glass kind of also has a first chapter that's setting up a framing for quite a while. But this is kind of more detail about the character's home life than we get for Alice Riddle. Wait, does does Alice in the books actually have a last name? I don't believe that she's... I don't remember. OG Alice? Original Alice? I don't know, actually. Like, I have this strange impression that she has a last name, but I can't recall what it is. Anyway, I was kind of expecting her brother to, like be important or show up at some point later sure. and he doesn't well he's very important in the first several the, pages yeah yeah until she goes to wonderland and then, and then he's not important yeah. at all never shows up doesn't matter nobody matters never she mentions again. her mother quite a bit but not her brother it's kind of odd hmm. so once she's in wonderland as noted it's kind of a tour and there's something julie and i were talking about a little bit uh earlier before recording which is that there's this very fanon idea that that is put into place in the sequel, which is that Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass Land are absolutely the same place. And in the books, that's not at all clear. Like, there's nothing in Through the Looking Glass that references the Wonderland characters, except for apparently a guest appearance of the Mad Hatter and the March Hare, which I didn't know about. But they're, like, it's mostly in the illustrations. Like, there's a an Anglo-Saxon messenger named Hatta, and it's the Hatter, and, like, another one named something else, and it appears to be the March Hare. But that, they're not even, it's not like Alice even recognized them as such in the text. So, in the original works, that's not necessarily a thing. She goes to two different places and has two different sets of adventures. Here, they seem to be superimposed. It's, like, the same place. And I think lots of people do this with the Alice material, and... It's very clear and obviously very long-standing fanon. Yeah. Yeah. It, it feels like well, they should be the same place, right? If you're just, like, casually reading it. They are in the Disney film we grew up with. They, they That's are also in, true. You yeah. know, what I mean to say is that from our perspective, and then there's another film they came out with, the, like, the live-action with Johnny Depp, where it's like they are the same world. Like, I, I, I believe that most of the modern things we've consumed don't ever construe them to be different worlds. Mm-hmm. But it's a good point that this is written much earlier than the films we have in our modern conception of it it's just yeah i kind of wonder if anyone you know really interpret them as different considering that i don't know well i mean i think i mean there's i agree that there's no indication that they're the same yeah and i think carol probably didn't think they were the same he was like she enters through this one nonsense world has adventures there and then she enters into another nonsense world has adventures there and i bet if he had written a third book she would have had a third way of getting there it would have been a totally different you know geography themed around um Dice. Some other kind of game. Dice yeah. would be game. plausible. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that the author of this does something that rescues this bit of fanon for me towards the end of the book, in the middle and then more strongly towards the end, mm-hmm. which is making it really, really clear that there are other chess sets and other <laughs> decks of cards yes. and the pieces know each other and travel from place to place. Yeah. And that makes this conceit that they're the same place feel a little bit more cohesive to me. Yeah, that's true. It's like even this big gathering towards the mm-hmm. end. 
that we'll probably talk about a bit later. Does that mean there could be like a shogi board version out there? <laughs> <laughs> probably across the sea. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're making me want to map out Wonderland here <laughs> with like various, you know, old types of games. Um, but I don't want to bad enough that I'm actually going to do it. Like all my fanfic type ideas. <clears throat> yeah. mm-hmm. So I think we're at a juncture here where we have to decide how we're going to talk about this because there's no, there's no through line of a plot such that we need to talk about it from the start to the end linearly. Correct. Except that flipping through is going to be a little bit easier if we do it linearly and just to chalk memory. But That's other than that, true. I agree. It's just... It, it's not completely disconnected. Uh, characters exit the scene and then return and, and, and broadly speaking there's connections between those scenes and they remember what was going on Alice certainly does um, yeah there's continuity it's just that there's, it's not like there's a plot really no. uh, but, yeah well there's there's kind of a through line in that Alice develops her exploration of this world and her understanding of this world it's basically just her going through meeting basically the characters from original Alice's adventures to the point that culminates in this party. So. so we can talk a little bit, I guess, about the Duchess and the pig and, you know, the Duchess's place to begin with because it's the first place she ends up. She, like, follows a pig, which turns out to be the pig baby, back to the Duchess's place. And the Duchess is there, the frog footman is there, the, um, the cook is not there at the time. But mm-hmm. the Cheshire cat is there. Cheshire? Cheshire. 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 It's a hard C-H. Worcestershire? Yeah. Worcester. I I think I've always said Cheshire. I think in the film it was Cheshire. Oh, wow. I can't even say Cheshire. Yeah. What what you said. Cheshire. Yeah. Cheshire. (laughs) I think I said that right. Right. (laughs) A good portion of this podcast is just trying to decide how to pronounce things. Yeah. (laughs) Got no context. That's quite strange because I, I don't think I would have ever like questioned how to pronounce that word until we were just trying to like slur it all around just now. Cheshire, right? Well, you're talking about the Shushu cat, you know? Yeah, Shushu cat. And so there's a lot of episodic things, right? And we we almost touched on it before, but I think we can talk about it now here. There's a lot less of this Alice getting frustrated with Wonderland residents. It happens, but not as much. Like, a lot of the time, she's just kind of happy to be there because she's a Wonderland fan. Yes, yeah. and that's interesting to me because this presentation of the world, to me, would be much more frustrating. With, specifically because it is very, very clear, not just in the framing device, but in the details of these encounters, that Alice is dreaming. Oh, yeah. And she's dreaming in a way that's very familiar to me in in ways that, for me, are frustration dreams. Right. Things aren't staying stable, and I'm trying to accomplish something, and mm. it it's not... People appear and disappear. She's like, oh, I, I guess I have this thing. I don't remember having it before, but it's I more, had it before. For her, it's a lot of people appearing and disappearing, um, things going where... misplaced, but also the, the doors in the house and the rooms just changing when you go between them. There's a point where she thing. tries to read a bunch of book titles and she just can't. Mm-hmm. Yes. But aren't those all from kind of the the Lewis Carroll source as well? It happens I, a little. I was glancing back through at the sheep scene because I did not remember the sheep shopkeeper at all. And there's a part there where, like, she's looking at things, but the, whatever shelf she's looking at has nothing. And all the shelves in the corner mm-hmm. of her eyes have tons of things. But that's about the only time I remember. I, I think I'm it sorry. happens, but 
It does so sparingly, and I mm-hmm. think primarily for scene changes. Whereas in this text, it's just constant. Mm-hmm. Every encounter, multiple times, something appears, something disappears, Alice loses track of something, door appears, True. room changes. Just, it's continuous. And for me, it makes it less pleasant of a read. Um, mm-hmm. I just, I don't frankly enjoy this as possibly that's um, unsurprising and a little bit unfair to say I don't enjoy this as much as Lewis Carroll but um, that is something that to me really gets in the way of this being an enjoyable pastiche is just that she hammers on this dream setup so hard and so consistently sure yeah, no, I, I hear that. Like, it didn't stick out to me as much in reading it because, to me, it was enchanting to read something that was so reminiscent in many ways of Lewis Carroll's work, which I think is kind of a hard thing to achieve. I think uh, people have tried and and not succeeded. But I will agree that it is, uh, in two ways, it's, it's a great through line that it's, like you said, dreamlike and consistently so but it also does make it redundant and a little bit less, you know, enchanting, I suppose, like the original is. You, you don't quite have as much mystery because you're like, oh, yes, this is a dream thing and now a dream thing has happened. And the dream things are consistent in the sense that it's like just like a fading of memory, an unreality that causes a transition to the next chapter or scene. I will say that I I think this is one, that, one of the best depictions of dreaming in narrative form that I remember Mm -hmm. reading. Um, But I do think Lewis Carroll does something different with it, and I think it's because of his mathematical, logical interest that he really wants to set up some absurd situation and then really push it. Mm -hmm. And to do that, he can't have seen internal dream logic because that would break what he's trying to do with the strictly logical but over-the-top absurdities this is just a different kind of flavor of absurdity to me yeah and that being said you know and and i won't linger too long on this because i i think we should you know move through a bit but the author does try really hard like especially in a scene later where alice goes to a school to the kindergarten Mm -hmm. where there's a lot of books and there's especially like a scene where the mock turtle is trying to learn about uh, everything the teacher knows by reading the teacher's answer key, and it's all a key for mathematics. So it's just the answers to math problems that the mock turtle doesn't know. And so there's like constant problems of absurdity where people are trying to accomplish something in an absolutely the wrong logical way. But Alice fails to refute their logic, well, and it, it mirrors that dream state. And I think that does a Lewis Carroll thing as well, where it mimics like kind of the mathematical and logical conundrums, but it doesn't do it quite in the same way. It does it, you know, as an homage, but it's not quite as witty because it's not actually a logical or mathematical conundrum in and of itself. Well, I think that that is one of the more Carol-like pieces, yeah, and I scene. think there are a few mm-hmm. of those that are quite strong. I just think that a lot of the time, it's maybe more often, more often than not, it feels to me like it's just stuff happens, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and the the stuff that is happening is not necessarily. It's it's connected through um, association, yeah. Uh, but it's not. It doesn't have that 
coherence to me. Well, I think um, sometimes it does. I like sometimes it does. I like to draw a distinction between like the this first and second incident mm-hmm. with the Duchess in her house. She just kind of wanders in. She chats with the cat. The footman convinces her to go check in on the Duchess, and she's just like, "Sure, why not?" And you know, the Duchess shouts at her, and she like leaves. And mm-hmm. it's yeah. like not that interesting because yeah. she doesn't really have a stake in it. But and the eggs chat- are China eggs, and right. Oh and yeah, like yeah. it's, it's silly. Things. There's a few good lines. I I mean, I remember her asking the um, the footman if the Duchess is always in such a temper, or always like that. Oh yes, this is a great line. <laughs> um, is she always like this? Most generally, when the cook's gone out, she is. And she's just the same when the cook's come in. And when the cook's gone out again, lackaday, you just ought to see her. Yeah, I've, I like that line. Yeah, and but, the text's actually full of flavor like that. It, it's consistent in flavor. The sure. flavor of the speech is very consistent. Uh, she uses the Lewis Carroll italicizing of emphasis words um, very consistently and very well. Uh, I think the dialogue kind of sounds right to me most mm-hmm. of the time. And I think the, the scenes are also more compelling when Alice ends up having a stake in them. And so the tea scene, chapter three, I thought was a lot better than the Duchess one. She wanders into the tea party and like the table's all a mess and she's kind of poking around and she looks in one of the little cottages around and it's just full of like thrown out used cutlery and just... and bowls and little cups and such. This part was so delightful and, to me. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe my favorite, definitely my favorite part. And for one thing, she starts like she cleans up the table, and then, like, the dormouse wander, you know, shows up and needs to set up for the new tea party. It's like, what have you done messing with all those things? And the dormouse, you know, laboriously puts back everything exactly where it was and then throws it all into that house where all the used tea yeah. things are. Well, and, <laughs> actually, it's a little more complicated. She goes into the house. She tries to go in the house, and the door is blocked, and she goes in the window, and there's a pile of broken china in front of the door that's blocking the house, and that's where she finds the dormouse. Oh, right, right, right. Right. But then, yeah, then he comes out in this... He calls it the laundry, too, because he lives in the teapot. That's why he calls it the laundry. (laughs) That's hilarious to me. He's like, all the broken china is my laundry. Um, He comes back out, and he's like, we need to set this all back out in its place. And then once he does that, he throws it through the window. So then you're revealed why there's broken pile of chinas, because they're constantly throwing it through the window and calling it the laundry. And there's a great conversation where there's a second little house that has nothing in it, and, um, you know, he's saying that, oh, yeah, that room's a mess, but this room's completely orderly. And she says, mm. no, there isn't, she contradicted. I don't call this order at all. Order means keeping your things in order. And he says, but we keep our things in one room and our order in another, so they don't get mixed up together all the time. And that's a great deal better than your way, because then this room's always tidy. And that was it, absolutely my favorite scene of all. And, and, <laughs> so good. In general, the whole tea party scene works because she's getting frustrated, like original Alice. Sure, Because sure. Like, she's deeply offended by the incredible waste going on here and all this sort of thing. And, and then, you know, she gets pulled into the tea party, too, and kind of gets put on the spot for a lot of things. And it's all a lot more engaging because she's not just sort of waving it off. Well, that's a really good point. Like, you know, I didn't think about it. This is my favorite scene, my favorite part. And it's because, yeah, she's actually engaged with it and feeling something about it. And also, I uh, I think the uh, her recitation yeah. at the party, um, the only book that she has to hand is uh, some kind of housekeeping guide. Advice to Young Housekeepers. So she reads a recipe, and this is, I think, one of the bits of nonsense that quite works. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's it's the, the kind of... This author does a lot of juxtaposing of words and ideas. There's another one much later. 
uh, that I think also works, but it's to make sherry bliffins, take your bliffins while not so tough as they otherwise would be, uh, pair them for an hour in warm weather rather longer, an inch longer will do, right? So it's Uh doing this time length uh, confusion um, and so on. And I think it works. Yeah, and yeah, it's quite aphasic, if you could say that with yes. Is that not problematic, like, being a medical diagnosis? I'm not sure, but... And, of course, you know, by the time she's reading these things, like, and she's been kind of pressured into doing it, but, like, then everyone's very impressed and reacting emotionally to these nonsense recipes and, you know, like, blowing their noses and sobbing or... Well, no, they love the first one, oh, so, the which first... is why she's so eager to read a second one, and that's the one that gets everybody sobbing. Okay, right. Well, because they, they agree that they can't have anything as delightful as that, and then they later reveal that they always eat hash. So they're very <laughs> sad that they can't have these delightful things. So from there, I don't feel like we need to touch in on every single, you know, interaction she has with Wonderland characters. And we can probably just talk about the the things or the threads that we want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, um, in the next chapter with Humpty Dumpty, we get the mm-hmm. first occurrence of something that happens like f- at least three, maybe four times in this, which is a sequel or addition to a poem from the original works. Oh, yeah. The author likes doing that. Like, all of a sudden, though, there were a lot of them. Well, it starts here. She gets Humpty to continue his little, like, fishes song poem. There's some good dialogue leading into it. Well, because one kind of through line with this is that she's a new Alice in the old Wonderland. So she's like, I would love to hear everything that you have to say about your experience to every character she meets. (laughs) Yes. Which is, in its way, delightful. But, like, as you know, we were kind of mentioning, y'all were mentioning before, is like kind of like the author insertion sort of thing. And I, the, I think there's also a certain amount of out of characterness that strikes me about a lot of the characters. Humpty Dumpty is not too bad. He's Mm -hmm. kind of Mm -hmm. obnoxious and explainy in the same way as the original, but, uh, not quite as explainy, I'd say. Maybe not quite as explainy, but in general, the, the characters don't feel quite on to me, given that there's so much attention to them being the same characters that she's getting yeah. to converse with. They don't, yeah. the voices don't feel quite right to me. When she meets the Red Queen and the Red Queen gets annoyed at her and threatens to cut off her head, it feels like she's just going through the motions. Right. <laughs> the <laughs> Red Queen the is fire. kind of drawn as going through the motions. Yeah, though. that's true. Well, or the Queen of Hearts, rather, not the, queen, the Red Queen. No, not the Red Queen. The Queen of Hearts, yes. The, the Red Queen also shows up. and But I always found those characters a little bit bland, anyway. Um, There's some good characterization of, of each character she meets, but it, it is, I think, different from the source. I feel like... Humpty, I think that's right. The, the characters have character. It's just not always the same characters. Mm-hmm. Like the Griffin or the Mock Turtle seem to be just coming from totally different places. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, let's see, I was talking about the sequels. So in addition to like a little bit of ending to Humpty's poem, whatever, that I don't remember very well, later in the book we also get a sequel to the Jabberwocky called mm. The Bandersnatchy. Yeah. Well, that one worked better than the others, I think. <laughs> uh, it was clever, but as my brother pointed out when I mentioned it to him, it, it, the meter was a bit off. And to me, it didn't have as many nonsense words as I would have liked for a Jabberwocky parallel. But it was quite fun. That's true, but I will admit that a poem with the theme of 
they were bragging about the Jabberwock too much. So Mm -hmm. I went out and did something even better Mm -hmm. so that they'd stop talking about it. (laughs) Kind of works. It's 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 both the the fanficy kind of one upping while also being very conscious of how absurd that is. Yeah, and as as my brother also pointed out, I think the Bandersnatch was one of the things we actually got like a description of being like a, a corkscrew and something else in the original. I don't recall fully, but um, it was nice to have kind of a visual of that. That the Bandersnatch was the thing they were trying to slay this time. Uh, but I guess yeah, maybe we should talk about Humpty. Well, um, uh, is there anything to say about Humpty? Well, his life was insured. <laughs> which I found quite funny. Oh, oh, yeah, that's why he didn't die from falling off the wall, but neither of them seems entirely clear on what it means to have your life insured. <laughs> Except that he was hard-boiled. Right, in order to insure his life. Yes. That is pretty clever. It's pretty funny because it takes you back to the the child, like, the thing that's funny in Lewis Carroll's work is a child's perspective on something that, you know, would make no sense to a child. What is life insurance to a child? Um, and to a child, it's, you know, an insurance that your life might not end, question mark. And Humpty seems to think the same thing. And he's very unclear, but he's like, I had myself hard-boiled. And she thinks, you know, Alice says, oh, well, it didn't, wasn't that hurt quite a bit? And he's like, well, it was quite hot. And afterwards, I was, I was kind of uh, less flexible and uh, some other things, like... I think it affected his mind somewhat, but... Uh, but at least now they, they, they can be a noir detective. <laughs> That's right. Yes, a hard-boiled noir detective. <laughs> and I thought that that worked pretty well. The following chapter, I think, is one that really didn't work for me. It's one where I really got bogged down. Which one's that? The White, the White Knight. Knight. Oh, yeah, the Knight... The Knight's so boring. It's like, for some reason, the author seems to like the White Knight for some reason. So Alice spends a lot of time around him being all chummy. Uh, and, like, yeah. he's he sings another song to the same tune as the one he sang in the original, but it's not that interesting. And she she knows the thing about the the name of the song, is, or the name of the song is called versus the na- song, name of the song is versus the song is called. Yeah. Versus, and she prompts him for and the anything- next... Uh, part of that and um, anything that results in her getting less annoyed by Wonderland characters just makes the book less fun and so like there's also several conversations where someone says some you know ridiculous statement and she's just like I'm not going to try arguing to them about that because I know it's going to be useless and you're like that's that's reasonable but not fun yeah well, but there are parts that make it fun and and though I agree it's just uneven like some parts are a lot more fun than others but what I mean is that there are parts about the White Knight that make him fun, which is that he's different from what Alice expected, um, in that he's changed. He now carries a beautiful Art, thing, which is stuff from yes. China and Japan. Yes, Japanese things. As he phrases it, on his, on his horse, and that creates like a, I guess a tiny conflict in like looking for a hammer to, to fix. The horse, I don't fully yeah, recall. Yeah, because he doesn't have anything useful again. No, he has nothing useful. I, I like and, his explanation for having them, which is, she asks, do you do you use those for anything? He says, oh, no, not for anything at all. But I tend to study art someday, and when I do, they'll be absolutely essential to look at art. Yeah, because well, it's the conundrum, it's the um, juxtaposition of the useful and the beautiful things. He's chosen the beautiful over the useful, mm-hmm. which I think is, I do think is really funny. Because it implies that there's only beautiful or useful things, and that there's nothing in between. And I, I think it draws attention to the fact that that's really 
not the case. But I, I agree that it, yeah, it, it kind of gets a little, like, uh, redundant, I suppose. Well, there's also just several chapters here in a row that I didn't enjoy very much. The, the Red yes. Queen and the Duchess, she meets she meets the Duchess traveling with the Red Queen and some chess pieces. And, like, it, it, it establishes that they're going to the kindergarten for some kind of event, which comes back later. Mm-hmm. And, like, some things happen. Like, I think the Red Queen gives her a crown because she expresses yeah. an interest in being a queen. And even though I thought she was... I, I think the White Queen gives her a crown later on. Oh, maybe it's later on. It's not during this chapter. I don't, I don't remember because I didn't care too much. <laughs> There's frequent references back to... This was just occurring to me because it's coming up a little bit in the text. Is like, to Alice's mother is the only, like, character from her life who keeps... Or person from her life who keeps coming back up. Mm-hmm. Like, there's been things, like, it was her mother's cookbook that she was expected to read out of at the tea, cere- the tea party, I mean. And it was, like, um, her... The, when she meets the... Is this the Red Queen now? Yes. Yeah. The Red Queen yes. comments in... And I think the Duchess too comments on the way she's dressed and shouts about how her mother made her dress and... Then there's some comment on how her mother cuts out her dress from patterns. And I found that kind of interesting. And I'm finding it more interesting now that I realize that isn't it the author's daughter who did the illustrations? Yes. Kind of fascinating. There's a lot of mother-daughter things happening, but you're not really sure why. And then there's this whole thing with crowning Alice, um, where you're like, oh, yes, she meets with these queens, you know, adult women. Then they also crown her. Yeah. And they're, they're a lot kinder to her than you would expect them to be, really. They're well, while also her. being very catty, both with her and with each other. Yes. They're yeah. dismissive and they're catty, but... The and, chess queens specifically are very welcoming to Alice and Through the Looking Glass, too. Yes. I mean, they're not the Red Queen or anything. The queen sure. of Hearts. Queen of Hearts. They're not, queen of Hearts, yes. They're not the Queen of Hearts or anything like that. Or the Duchess, yes. Um... So yeah, it's so it is the same chapter, but the White Queen has come along um, okay. to give her the crown towards the end yeah. of the chapter. The White Queen was kind of the I think the kindest to her. Am I right? Yeah, whatever. I get them Pretty mixed close. up. It's just not all that interesting to me. What's a little bit more interesting, at least to start with, is that she starts. The author starts introducing a few new characters, which up until now there really haven't been any. But she introduces a pair of bishops, like a red and a white bishop. And at least in their first scene, I found them pretty entertaining, where, like, the black one has, like, it's is missing their head, but that doesn't really matter. They're a chess piece, and it can still talk a little bit. And the red one is rather direct and will say, like, a couple of words, and then the white one is extremely, mm-hmm. what's the word, ponderous, and, like, will then say the same thing the red one said, but in, like, you know, 100 times as many words. Mm-hmm. And glancing back over it, that's where the busy bumblebee comes back, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> so she writes another uh, How Doth the Little Busy Bee uh, satire, um, which I thought was also quite effective because it it takes the moralizing from the original poem and twists it in a different way than Lewis Carroll does. Mm-hmm. So How Doth the Little Crocodile is kind of, you know, praising the crocodile's ability to deceive and then eat uh, sure, it's prey, yeah. right. uh, whereas this one is kind of like it's it's still about the the busyness of the bee, but it's just like in in a nonsensical and and arguably kind of pointless way. Um, and gather wax for you, uh, her shiny nose prepare and gather wax for you and me and honeycomb her hair. Um, it it 
it feels more like the original moralizing, and then you reflect on it, and it's like, but there's no lesson there. Right. Yeah. And it, and that fits very well with us being introduced to the the white bishop who has nothing important to say, but will will talk forever. Yes. Uh, let's see. What other parts of this story do you use particularly like or want to talk about more? I think my favorite parts were closer to the end, so I'm trying to scroll I agree. through. And... I like the mock yes. turtle and and um, what's what's their name, Tweedle, for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree with both of those. <laughs> <laughs> she yeah, she visits a kindergarten. That's where some of the there's some cool nonsense having to do with education. Like, Mm -hmm. she looks at this book called Test Questions on Physics. That, I thought, was one of the strongest bits of nonsense in this book. I thought it was wonderful. Would someone like to read it? I've got it here. All right, yeah, yeah, I've got it too. Or we can do it as as questions and answers. Oh, yeah, very good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's such good content. Mm -hmm. Should I read the questions? Um, Let's go back and just... um, (laughs) the, The context, the preface is described, and it's... Um, it's amusing in itself because the author stated his belief that many of the professors were not themselves aware of the proper answers. <laughs> and in this case, his present work would be, quote, a boon alike to teachers and taught. So yeah. it's, oh, right. Which is um, unfortunately quite realistic in some ways. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and I brought up earlier that it, around this section, in the next chapter, we have the mock turtle trying to learn all the teachers know from the, the answer books and not getting anything from it. So Right, it's part of the same kind of education yes. scene. But here the physics questions are things like, the first question is, what was formerly the theory concerning physics? Physics was formerly supposed to be a name for medicines. <laughs> when it was gradually observed that physics did not cure the sick, scientific men made investigations with a view to discover their true nature and use. Did they succeed? They did. It was discovered to be useful stuff for school books. That's pretty good. <laughs> Number three is, what are the chief properties of physics? Dryness and hardness. This is especially amusing because this is reminiscent of some of the alchemical properties of... Yeah. Yeah. Then <laughs> we go on. And, yeah, it, it goes on with other things. At one point, to demonstrate that the fo- that momentum depends on the circumstance, they try to give the example that if you throw a ball at the head of a professor of physics, that's a big deal. But if you hit a, a bad small boy with one, then no one cares, and that's fine. Yeah. And <laughs> it's that's... just a very, very teacher perspectives in, like, right. this kind of, like, arrogant... Well, that's directly predicated by the question of what is matter. Matter is a variable to quality depending for its existence on circumstances. So, like, (laughs) you get this, like, circumstances, like, oh, yeah, that's correct. But then they create a very absurd circumstance. Yes. Um, Although for for punchiness, I thought the very last two questions were kind of a, a very strong place to end this section on. Right. What is a porous substance? One you can pour water through, such as sieves, colanders, drainers, etc. Are teapots, pitchers, and jugs porous? Only partially so. <laughs> and they end that way. It's, yes. just, it's just such a bizarre and absurd way. But, to but end. it's also so logical from, you know, the perspective that you're absorbing there. Exactly, yeah. Of course they're partially porous because you can pour <laughs> water out through part of it. Yeah. Yeah. What uh, is porous? Something you can pour through. There you go. It is porous. And so, yeah, the mock turtle stuff happens here. And it's all, it's, I feel like it goes on a little bit long, but it's pretty amusing 
um, like you said, the Bachschule's dedication to learning what teachers know rather than what students are supposed to learn, and yes. therefore just trying to learn the answers and, you know, that kind of thing. And after she... After that scene, that's where the Tweedle scene comes. And, I mean, there's this interesting framing with the Tweedles, where everyone insists that there's just one Tweedle. She's asking about Tweedledee and Tweedledum, and whoever she talks to is like, there's only one, what are you talking about? When she talks to Tweedle, he says, like, oh, yeah, there's just one of... Oh, I forget how he puts it. Um, I think the Tweedles are maybe not until after the Great Occasion. Oh, it's after the Occasion. We're skipping... I forgot the Occasion. Which is one of, in fact, two big parties where all of the characters show up. That's There's true. another one at the very end. But... Um, There's also, like an earlier tea party where it's not all of the characters, but it's like everyone at the tea party is invited to a big event that happens <laughs> later. So there's like, there's just several gatherings. Right. And so the great occasion is this big, like kind of mostly noble party that's happening at the kindergarten. For some reason, they do have a teaching demonstration where a teacher, it's pretty well scripted yeah. actually, I think compared to other kinds of throw all of the Alice characters together because this is more of a performance, so only a few characters are actually interacting. Right. And um, I thought it was reasonably well put together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not unamusing. Alice doesn't really have anything to do with it. It's just kind of observing. Well, but I think that's consistent in a way to the source. Yeah. You know, like Alice being an observer of Wonderland is playing the straight man, essentially. Yeah, at least sometimes it makes sense. Yeah, except, yeah, like we mentioned before, this Alice is a bit different because she has foreknowledge. <laughs> she more or less knows what to accept, expect. Yeah, which makes her a very different character. But, you know, to be fair, and I thought this whole time, I was like, well, it's kind of like, you know, the Alice you see in Wonderland is kind of like someone you can put yourself in the position of observing absurdities. It's just this is an Alice with foreknowledge, which is also a character you can put yourself in the place of have you read the source materials? So. I think that's right, but I think the extent to which this Alice consistently gets the jokes is one of the things that makes this text not work for me so much. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I, I agree in that I was more engaged the more frustrated Alice was. I I don't really know, yeah. didn't really think about why, but it's definitely the case. <laughs> which I think is one of the reasons why the Tweedle section yes, is so strong. It is. She's quite frustrated. So the um, the Queen of Hearts, I guess, is the one telling her there's only one Tweedle, and like they end up at Tweedle's house. Well, I think I think the introduction to this, the thing that starts Alice questioning this, is that uh, the Queen is looking through her two hands, kind of like in binocular. Uh, shape. Oh, right. And doing that causes Alice to unfocus in the way that causes images to overlap. So she also sees the Tweedles as one person when she's doing that. Oh, right, because they're walking in the distance. And that's the initial trick of perception that is quite realistic that forms the basis, I think, for this sequence. Okay, right. So, but she goes into, like, Tweedle's house and, like, chats with chats with him and there's just one Tweedle and he, he he's pretty rude but kind of like par Wonderland rude I feel like <laughs> I mean I guess in this story people are a lot nicer to Alice than you know they often are in the source but yes he does unambiguously identify himself as Tweedledee oh this one's Tweedledee oh okay I did not because realize because he says those names were just fancy 
Uh, and then he immediately contradicts himself by explaining, if you see me first, then I'm D. Oh, right. Contrary-wise, if you see him first, he's dumb. Right. Mm. Which isn't a contradiction, of course. <laughs> yeah. uh, and But then there is some uh, nonsense still. He lives on one side and I live the other. Or I live one side and he lives the other. It's just as happens, whatever. <laughs> She's right. I, I like a lot of that dialogue. I saw one of you a little while ago, Alice remarked. Did you, asked Tweedle? Which one? That's what I don't know, said Alice. At first I thought it was both of you. If you don't know which one you saw, you can't tell which one I am, he said. No how. And she just kind of... But but he also talks as if he's like... He doesn't like his brother and has arguments with him or, you know, all that kind of stuff. They have a battle, I guess. I mean, you know, they have battles. That's what Tweedles do. What I also like from the Tweedle scene is the walrus and the carpenter alternative ending. I... I didn't enjoy it. I, I didn't like the ending itself, but I like what comes after it and before it, I guess. Because, for one thing, I liked the the whole dialogue where he, he says, Come under this umbrella, he said, and I'll tell you the rest of that poetry. Oh, that will be delightful, exclaimed Alice, taking a seat. But you haven't told me any poetry yet. Haven't I, said Tweedle? That's very curious. I don't understand it. For you've heard the walrus and the carpenter, I'm sure. Yes, said Alice, but you didn't say it to me, and I, it wasn't I who heard you, and... And, you know, she gets all mixed up about it. Anyway, the alternative ending is just that the walrus and the carpenter get, you know, arrested and thrown in jail and repent their sins. And she, being a normal reader with, like, mm. normal moral compass, is like, oh, that's a great ending. And he's, he's like, oh, no, well, that's not actually how it ends either. And he's like, it isn't, well, how, what happens after that? Oh, the carpenter soon got out of prison, and then he got the walrus away, too. So they both went down to the seashore and got some more oysters. Well, and also, <laughs> Alice expresses pleasure at the ending, and Tweedle's like, well, the carpenter is related to me. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that he too. says, and the walrus was my uncle. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, uh, but I also just like that, that a moral lesson is tacked on, like, you know, unnecessarily to it, but then immediately oh, right. undermined by her saying, like, and she's like, I thought they were both really sorry about it. And Tweedle's like, yeah, but oysters are really delicious. So, you know. That's yeah. fair. There was a lot of demand, I think, at the time for a moral ending to The Walrus and the Carpenter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm sure. And uh, as I recall, this manifested in a stage version where they added an extra verse where uh, The Walrus and the Carpenter are punished by being haunted by the ghosts of the oysters <laughs> that they ate. Yeah, yeah. Um. There's an old piece of animation that represents that, actually. I don't remember who did it, but it was quite good. It might have been one of the old Betty Boop cartoons representing the haunting of the oysters. <laughs> Always very fascinating. But yeah, um, yeah, they, there was this whole thing where like they, when they say, you know, the carpenter's a relation, the walrus is my uncle, he's getting a mischievous look. Yeah, that state, didn't work for so. me because I feel like yeah, it, it was a little too obvious, I guess. Any nonsense that a Wonderland character is saying, they should be fully committed to. They shouldn't Correct, be like yeah. feeling like they're pulling one over on you or like joking with you. That that ruins the whole point. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I then agree. Alice says, I don't believe you at all. And Tweedle goes, I don't care. Have him for your uncle then if you like. It suits me just the same. <laughs> and it's just, it, it kind of goes on. It's, I don't know. 
Yeah, that's yeah. that. That's a weakness. Yeah. I agree. Um, but then the ending of the chapter is quite good. Right. She ends up going around to the other side of the house and going in. Well, to the other house around the side of or the hill. The other house around the side of the hill, and she goes in, and Tweedle is there, and she has the exact same conversation with him that he had. She had at the beginning of the chapter. Yeah. But you know, the implication being this is the other Tweedle. Right. But she pulls herself away at a certain point. Also, very dream logic, where she's like, "Wait, wait, wait!" Suddenly, she's uh, lucid. And, like, she's like, wait, I'm having the same conversation. I'm out. And yeah. she walks away still not sure, like, was that the same guy who went to the other house? Or was that, like, another Tweedle? I don't know. It's kind of neat. And I, it worked on me. Because when I started reading that, I did stop and go back and check and see whether there was some problem with my PDF. <laughs> like, for <laughs> yeah, a moment, yeah, whether yeah. some pages were repeated. Exactly the same. Right. No, I, that's pretty good, actually. It's just, I, I kind of wish there, yeah, that middle part where it'd been, you know, the the idea of deliberate deception kind of been foregone. Because it's not necessary, I guess. It, it's not bad because the flavor is still all there and the dialogue still works for those characters. It's just the implication that there's deliberate deception kind of adds this extra layer that I don't think you need for the story. I think it kind of reflects on the story as a whole. It's like, always you kind of get this idea that, that the Wonderland characters are doing something to Alice more deliberately than they probably should be, considering that the world they live in is a little more nonsensical than hers. Mm-hmm. Well, then at the end of the story, there's that pageant that Julia mentioned, which is the other kind of royal gathering. And yes, here's where and it's, it's really, really boring. It's super boring. It's also where it's laid out, like you mentioned, that chess set pieces, chess set courts, I guess you would say, are visiting from all over. Although that was decks. set up uh, earlier with the Red King missing his feet and the the white, uh, the, oh, the Red yeah. Queen mentions that they have to get a, a Black King oh, over right. from another chessboard to <laughs> fill, fill in. in. I actually quite like that that segment um, where the Red, it's the one where the Red Queen had taken his feet yes. because he went walking at night and it interrupted his sleep schedule, which was apparently like a detriment on their marriage is the implication is that he go walking at night, his sleep would be all off and the, you know, there she's just like, I'm going to take his feet. <laughs> all right. Then he comes hobbling out to Alice and he's like, don't look at me. I am a cripple of sorts and, and all of that. It was quite good. It's also the first mention they give that the chess pieces have not just feet, but sliders, because on the chessboard you have to slide because you couldn't walk. That would be absurd. It's too frictionless to walk. So <laughs> I, I quite actually like that part. Yeah, but so it's at least uh, another one of the of the through lines through this book that that there's multiple game sets Right. Mm-hmm. Out there in mm-hmm. contact with each other. But true, yes. But when you say this chapter is super boring, I feel like there's this whole sequence that struck me as just unnecessarily boring and also kind of in, in it's unnecessarily ways. self-indulgent. Yeah. Too. Like so she goes, there's this like cool castle, and the red knight is there, and the red knight needs to go to like find the white knight, who's her friend, right? And she tells him that they're friends. He's like, oh, you're a friend of the White Knights? And she treats he treats her great. And he says, like, oh, there's going to be this huge pageant with all, like, the royals participating. It happens occasionally. And do you want to join in? She's like, yes, I want to join in. And he's also like, I need to go find the White Knight. Do you mind, like, guarding the the gate while I'm out? And he's like, absolutely, because for some reason she likes the knight characters, who I don't even remember from Through the Looking Glass. But she's, like, a, a knight fanboy <laughs> and fangirl. Hmm. And, like, so she gets to sit on this horse and, like, hold the sword and guard the gate and just has a scene where she's very, very pleased to be doing this. And, like, that's all that happens. Yes, I, and, and the, the 
the marching with in the parade that she wakes up from is a purely positive event until she falls off the horse right. um, and wakes up. But contrast to the nightmare with the cards that's represented in the Disney mm-hmm. adaptation and so on. Well, both um, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass end with her getting really frustrated or in some kind of conflict with the royals and like waking up in that state of agitation. Whereas here, yeah, it's a good dream, and then she just wakes up. She falls falls, falls off, off the horse, horse slash falls off the couch she's sleeping on and wakes up. Also very little Nemo. Yes. So it's um, it's a really bad, boring chapter, but it's also a really good example of early fan fiction. Right, absolutely. In just being so self-indulgent with your original character, getting to everything goes right. Right. Excellent point. It's kind of evidence that fan fiction has always existed. Well, maybe not always, but at least for a very long time. Fan fiction never changes. <laughs> I, really, though? Like, I thought this was pretty early Alice fanfic, and it is. It is. But in doing a little bit of research for this, there's earlier, and I'm kind of curious like what that earlier stuff looks like. There's like something called something like more chapters of Through the Looking Glass or something from 1875 that somebody wrote. And I just wonder, like, do they combine Wonderland in that 20 years prior to the publication of this? And, you know, do they have... Well, they wouldn't have a new character if they were, like, extending the original. But, yeah, it, it's all... It's interesting how fanficy this is, absolutely, for a published work from yeah. 130 to 25 years ago. 125. It, yeah. it doesn't stand out right away because... You know, the the way it's written and the, the tone and the flavor of it, you, you're kind of just like, oh, yes, I'm, I'm reading something from the 1800s. But when you take the different pieces and put them together, you're like, this is exactly what a fan <laughs> author would write now. Because maybe using different language. I remember MST, an old Sailor Moon fanfic, where it's like, oh, yeah, it's me and my sisters, our new sailors you know, Sailor Scouts, and everybody mm. loves us, and we're part of the team, mm-hmm. and we have cool powers. And, I mean, it's not like Alice... In this story, Alice Lee is given, well, I mean, she's not given a a major role of importance, except that everybody's unnecessarily kind and nice to her and, like, wants her to participate in things, mostly. Not not everybody. She gets gets some flack, but not as much as you would expect. Yeah, and I suppose it's the main objectionable quality. You know, like I mentioned before, it's like... Even when she's given flag, she takes it in stride. Yeah. You would wish for more conflict, I suppose. <laughs> Anything else we want to talk about from the text, the main body of this, before we wrap it up? Uh, do we mention exactly how it ends? Uh, she's in a cool procession, she, and she falls off a horse, and well, she wakes up. Well, then she wakes up, yeah, in her own room. So yeah, well, there we go. It was the a end. dream. Yeah, it was a dream. It was all a dream. Which, you know, I would say is an objection of a cr- criticism of mine, but... It it I'll does do. appear that she's sleepwalking. She she yeah. wakes up somewhere else in her house, yeah. uh, and her mother puts her to bed and says that she used to sleepwalk herself. Another one of these mother daughter things that seems to be going on. Uh, so there's at least a little bit of a hint of mystery. Like how did she wind up in this other place? Did she right. really sleepwalk? Was it like? She got dumped back out of Wonderland, but in not quite exactly the right place. But, yeah, she... No, she definitely was still asleep. It's, I, it, that's the thing, like you were saying, Julie, it's just so clear that she's dreaming in this one. That you're not going to, like... That ambiguity is not much of an ambiguity. Yeah. I suppose, though, I do think that the, the ending lines of, you know, 
she was when she was wide awake in her own little room where there was no new door to be seen that she realized the whole significance for a dream and knew that she too had had some real adventure in Wonderland. And it's very specific, real adventure in Wonderland. I, I kind of feel like that is the idea that Arthur's, the author is trying to convey that like the, that reality is ambiguous. Like whether this was a dream or not is not the import. She had a real adventure in Wonderland, and, I, and they make that specific. I so. think I kind of agree, but I think the author's trying to uh, argue even that that these dream adventures, mm. if they matter to you enough, count as real, sure. while also making it clear that Alice knows that she was dreaming. Mm-hmm. And in that way, it feels a little bit more like the moralizing that Carol satirizes than anything in Lewis Carroll. Yeah. Oh, I hear that. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, either way, I don't like the ending for the sense that it is just so cut and dry. Like, in the sense, like, you could... There's definitely multiple interpretations of what the real adventure in Wonderland means, but at the end, it's like... But the reality of the story is that it was a dream. So you're you're only left with so many interpretations. And I think I would go with where you're at, Julia, in that sense. It's like, yeah, that's almost like saying that the source is just a dream as well. And I, I really don't like that interpretation. Speaking of interpretations, I do want to mention just in like reading about this story online in the course of this, you run into someone named Carolyn Sigler, uh, S-I-G-L-E-R, who has written multiple, apparently enough to fill a book, Alternative Alices, Visions and Revisions of Lewis Carroll's Alice Books, an anthology. And one of the articles that she wrote is called Brave New Alice, which is a great title. <laughs> Anna Matic- mm. Matlek Richards's Maternal Wonderland. And uh, I wasn't mm. able to read it online, but I was able to read the very beginning of it, you know, through some site that wants me to pay for it. And her thesis... She says, Richards's work, I shall argue, deserves special consideration of the Alice imitation canon because it indicates to the modern reader some of the ways that 19th century American women read, responded to, and resisted the construction of femininity in the original Alice books. And that is a close read that I was not prepared to do. But, yeah. like, I... I see think- some hints of that. In, there's, there's relationships among women mm-hmm. in this text that aren't present, I think, in Carol. I think that's definitely true. I agree with that. But I don't know what they signify or indicate. Well, that's what I was trying to point to earlier when I was talking about the mother, is that, you know, there's a lot of... But I don't necessarily see it as, like, a good social commentary. I mean, I, yeah. I'm not fully... I don't have a fully formed idea on it, so I'm not going to say either way. It's just a lot of times it's the queens kind and the duchess kind of coming... going in on Alice a little bit and her defending herself through her mother... But there's no resolution to that. And I think her her constant fixation on her mother, despite any other family member in her real life being present, should be something that I would like to see a through line through. Like maybe, you know, my dress was homemade by my mother. could be something to be, like, relished and supported rather than just something that's mentioned. Like I feel like uh, the relationships between women are mentioned, but I don't know if any, like to me any ideas uh, that the author might have are not fully formed, I suppose. I'd agree with that and then also say that I think the the relationships between women that we see clearly are not necessarily great. 
they're not great. It's not just the queens and the duchess uh, going in against Alice, but also them teaming up with Alice to go against, kind of forced teaming yes. with Alice to go against each other. And it's, you know, it's some of it's kind of funny, but it's not... It's not a great portrayal of femininity in my view. Yeah, and that's where it gets sticky to me, is it's like, I almost feel like there's a criticism that the author wants to present when Alice is like, my mother made my dress, but the criticism never comes to fruition, you know? Well, but would you want it to? Because then you would have, like, some sort of emotional or moral thing in an Alice book, like, as kind of a through-line plot point. I don't know. It's like, what... Well... I don't think that's not present in the source, per se. I mean, I think I think the ambiguity... Okay, let me put it this way. Ambiguity around morality is a part of, of Lewis Carroll's work. But it's not like uh, in this, where you have a presentation of, you know, per se, the, the queen's being mean to Alice, Alice recalling her mother, and nothing quite coming of that. It's not a setup with nothing coming from it, in my opinion. Hmm. I see what you mean. Do, do, it's not like he do says you know what I mean? Yeah, he doesn't like, set up something and then drop it in yeah, the yeah. books. That's, that's what I'm trying true. to say. I don't, yeah. I don't know if that's the right interpretation of this text, but that's how I feel. So well, you can uh, look you up, feel free to contradict me. You look up that anthology, and I'm sure there's someone who has things to say about it more so than us. The other thing I learned from the first part of this article is that, in addition to that, a few more chapters of Alice Through the Looking Glass from 1875, there's another unauthorized sequel called Another Alice Book, Please, from 1917, (laughs) which I kind of want to read just on the basis of that title. That sounds like some people that try to continue some other people's fan fictions before called (laughs) them something like that. (laughs) It feels like, it kind of feels like you're not trying, right? I mean, how hard is it to come up with the title of an Alice book? (laughs) <laughs> hmm. well it seems more like a platform for them to talk to the author to oh know, yeah re- request more unfortunately the author would have been dead for like 20 years at the time of that publication so huh. <laughs> he died young well 60 something not that young not that old not father william old or healthy i forget where i was going with that <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll let you keep going there though <laughs> we've Gone through most of the body of the book, kind of skimming over a lot of stuff that we weren't super interested in. Before we close it out, um, any, well, we've kind of talked about our criticisms. Any criticisms we haven't really touched on that we want to say before we move to praise? Some of the poems are really bad. Oh, yeah, some of them are. Yeah. That, that one the poet gives at the speech that's like... I don't think that one was supposed to scan, but wow, it did not scan. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't good. It also wasn't interesting. Um, and there's a bunch of other ones that sort of it slipped was, my mind. It was slightly amusing in the extent to which the poet is self-pitying, and that's portrayed directly in the poem. Yeah. As well as the surrounding. But yeah, no. It, it also, like, there was a whole verse in there which was also very bad fanfic of just like, I'm referencing the Tarts thing for a stanza. That's funny, right? Because it's a for reference. For the most part, I, I think that when this author was doing nonsense text that worked, mm-hmm. it was prose. It was not the poetry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think mostly you're right. Yeah, no, that'd have to be my criticism too. Um, and it's not that some of the poems weren't good. It's just that, you know, they were too ambitious 
some of them really tried to stand up to representing the source and they didn't work out. And I think the same thing can be said for some of this, like, kind of character and scene mirroring. And I mentioned it before, but they tried to create an idea of these characters. They did the idea they had in their own head. They didn't do an idea that was true to the source. And that's fine sometimes, but other times it's boring and it doesn't work. And it makes you kind of jump out of the text and feel like you're really not there anymore. So Here's my, my main criticism. criticism. How do you give so much screen time to, like the chess pieces, and not have the caterpillar make an appearance. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't remember mm. the caterpillar? That's a really good point, too. Although, <laughs> this author did not have the Disney animated movie, which That's I suspect That's probably why is I a the big part about so why well. you remember the caterpillar <laughs> so well. That's probably true, actually. You're right. Yeah, I actually didn't remember the caterpillar much until you just brought him up. <laughs> you know, it would be nice if he did make an appearance. Um, is there anything else you want to complain about before we move to praise, Julia? Nothing pressing. We've, I think we've covered it I think we've it covered it. We've also covered some of the praise, but I'd like to throw back out there. The illustrations are very good. Yes. They're beautiful. If you like... Absolutely. If you like the original Alice illustrations, I think it's worth flipping through this book just to, like, look at somebody else's illustrations of Wonderland in that style. Yeah. Uh, it, the style is pretty exact, The the hatching is and cross hatching is beautiful, and the the inks are it's beautiful. It's beautiful. <laughs> and the deer in the picture at the very beginning of the last chapter really cute. <laughs> That's true. Mm-hmm. I, I was just noticing that one. It didn't look too Wonderlandy, but it's very nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else do you think are the strongest points about this fanfic? This story moves at about three hundred pages. I want to say. Yeah. Uh, it can be engaged the whole time. They're yeah. short pages, but yes. It can yeah, be yeah, engaged kind of the whole time. Yeah. Well, it kept me engaged. Okay. I think you might have been the most engaged. <laughs> I was. I was engaged. And I will say that I was engaged by, I, I think, exactly what motivated the author to write this, which was expectation of which Alice characters I would see. And as I <laughs> oh, saw yeah. them, I was satisfied. Like, I, I won't say that all the depictions were accurate. I already mentioned that. But I was happy to see them. And I was happy with what the author did, which each of their roles. Like, everything was new and interesting. New scenes were set, you know, like they were created and new scenes were fully come to fruition. And there was an exactitude in terms of tone for this. Like, every time a scene was set, it it was a little bit more chapter by chapter for this. Like, each chapter sort of represented, like, kind of a new story arc. But every story arc came to its own conclusion, and it came to it through the same characters we knew from Alice, and it came to it in the same kind of absurd tone that we know from Alice. And I do think that's difficult to replicate. So as much as I think, you know, we can criticize the author for not getting it exact and for being a little self-indulgent, I actually think as far as this work goes, the tone was actually really good for an Alice story. So if I can try to interpret what you just said, I'd say that you meant that it it succeeded as fan fiction. Yeah. And I think I'd agree with that. I'm not sure that I was expecting it to, but even though I think it has a number of weaknesses and there's aspects to Lewis Carroll that she simply doesn't or can't capture. Or wasn't interested in. Or wasn't interested in. I think... 
it works more than it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. both in the sense that there's more sections that work than sections that don't, and the sense that within each section, more of it works than doesn't. Yeah, I think I agree. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a good stab at an Alice book. And I think maybe the illustrations are the very strongest yes. version of that. They're on but the point. text also. Yeah. There's a lot of good bits that like I'm going to remember in association with some of the characters and have to probably remind myself that that is not in the slightest Lewis Carroll. That is like that other fanfic yeah, work expanding off Exactly, it. yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, if I'd never read Alice's Adventures, I could have read this as its own book and been totally delighted. So, mm-hmm. Dom, what was your favorite good. part in chapter one that you actually read? <laughs> I, I really liked the tone of it, of like a kid talking really seriously about the mm-hmm. narration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I forgot to come back around to you. What was your least favorite part of chapter one? <laughs> the fact that it was 300 pages and I had lots of stuff to do this week. <laughs> it's been a busy week. Yeah. I'm a harsh fan fiction assigning master here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but thanks for sitting in. Uh, would you read this if you had spare time and were not socked in with constant fan fiction reading assignments, Dom? I'm actually not a fan of uh, surreal fiction. I mean, uh, long, long form surreal fiction. I kind of like it in short Burst like a short story or maybe like a five or ten minute short. Well, mm-hmm. I will let you know this is uh, this is less surreal than the the source. So well, but no, it has all the weird dream like. <laughs> yeah, but Julie it's like clearly about. a dream like stuff rather than being like a little bit more abstracted, which is actually what I didn't like about it. But anyway, yeah, I, I don't I'm don't like surreal in long form in general. Okay, okay. Yeah. I'm going to change your mind, but okay. We'll see if not more. likely. <laughs> not unless you can like relieve the sense of anxiety it produces. Oh, I can. <laughs> Maybe sometime in the future we'll find out if more Alice please or another Alice book please is more your speed. Sure. <laughs> then again, maybe not. We might have other other things to cover. Okay. I think that's our coverage then of a new Alice in the Old Wonderland by whatever this author's name was. Anna Matlock Richards. Anna Matlack, Matlack. Matlack, sorry. Matlack Richards. And you can find a link there at bit.ly slash rfralice. And I only found out relatively late that there is a, I think the correct term is podfic of this, though they would not have called it that, <laughs> um, you know, audiobook version for free online on the website LibriVox. Mm-hmm. LibriVox. How much do you have to pronounce that? Uh, they pronounce it in the recording. It's LibriVox. LibriVox. Did you listen to some of that, Tori? I mostly did, yeah. It was actually really good. It was really well read. So I um, can't remember. CJ something read it. They were great. CJ I loved them. P-L-O-G-U-E. Yeah, and it's available for free online. Yeah, yeah very they free. Were great. Very online. <laughs> and you can get it as a iTunes or RSS feed, as well as like a zip file torrent. It seems very friendly. Gonna have to check this again for future 125-year-old published works. With anybody else, it sounds like a joke, but... <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how far back we're interested in going. You know, part of the problem here is just, like, you know, to do that old um, Don Quixote-like fanfic mm-hmm. that the author complains uh-huh. about in Don Quixote Part 2, I would first have to read Don Quixote, like, you know, I'm not, which I haven't, and it's just a lot of work. Mm-hmm. So there's some old stuff that we might not get to. Like Spanish is rusty, yeah. <laughs> we need to find a real Don Quixote fan to have on as a guest. 
that's what that's what, that's what we have to do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. If you're listening out there, Don Quixote fans, send us a. Actually, I may as well tell you how you can contact us. <laughs> that's how we usually lead out of this. Mm-hmm. But first, I should thank Julia for coming on as a guest for the first time, and probably not the last. Thanks for having willing. me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's. As always, one of the fun things about having guests is that it makes me look for things that I otherwise would not have probably put on the assignment. And knowing that you're very familiar with Alice and would be interested in reading, you know, fan sequels made me go out and find one. It's part of our creeping campaign to have all our immediate family members on at some point. Yep. <laughs> well, we need to get one of your family members on, Dom. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got some lined up. The thing is that the microphones You've you got record. some contacts in, among your family. I, I, I've got an in or two. <laughs> <laughs> microphones record a DNA signature, so we're it's just elaborate DNA mapping oh. to clone our, our future They're generational one. <laughs> DNA locked. Yeah. This is Gear Solid 4 stuff, I think. Yeah. I'm definitely keeping an eye out for something I can read with my like older child, but I haven't run into any fanfic that... I have a reason to think might be good and that a six-year-old would appreciate yet. Hmm. We'll see what we can do. I mean, wait a few years and it won't be a six-year-old, so. I will find something for your specified older child. (laughs) Go ahead and take a look. Um, See if you can find any 15 or more year old Minecraft fanfics. Failing that, it can be Mario. (laughs) I'll do my best. It's not possible Minecraft was out. Minecraft's been around for a while, actually. About, what? Might have been almost just after years, or, right? or something. It's, almost, it's been almost 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe. I, I just remember playing it before it got released. No one knows and no one could possibly know. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's no way to find out. I know out. is kids like it. Anyway, this was episode 68 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, A New Alice in the Old Wonderland by someone whose name I forgot again, Anna Matlick Richards, 1835 to 1900. You can find a link to it online in multiple formats at bit.ly slash rfralice. The intro song to the podcast is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. You can find this album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. You can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have questions, comments, or thoughts about this episode, or if you are some kind of Don Quixote expert that wants to guest about and talking about that old unauthorized sequel that the author hated, then you can send us an email at retrofanficretrospective at gmail.com. You can contact us on Twitter or Facebook at retrofan... Uh, something. Fanfic, that's it. At RetroFanfic or on Reddit at Fanfic Retrospective, I believe. You can also leave comments or reviews on the podcast service that you use unless you download every file as an MP3 and put it into your music player like I used to do until I was actually participating in a fanfic. Do people I actually still do, do that? Uh, <laughs> I do. Participating in a, in a podcast, I should say. I gotta be more, more careful about what I name the files then. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Aren't they all just named like RFR and a number? Usually. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you just put something random in there. Well, also like the title of the track is not the official one sometimes. It's fine. It's just, yeah. Are there secret messages, Dom, in the MP3 files? Maybe should. misspellings and grammatical <laughs> mistakes. <laughs> Maybe there should be secret messages. Downloading them for the, the secret messages. This is all a map for me, for, for my future selves. 
I think all our listeners should download all of our episodes again just to be sure. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah that and sounds right. Spread them around and show them to other people. <laughs> yeah. We got to save the universe, right? Yeah, to find all the secret messages in all of them. Yes. Yes. All the codes. <laughs> Every time you download, there's a new part of the code. Share it with your neighbor. Maybe something will We're come We're not saying, saying there is a code, but we're not saying there's not a code. <laughs> Correct. Yes. We wouldn't say such a thing. No. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. I'm Dom. I'm Julia. We're just four Earth life forms in the old Wonderland trying to be especially nice to each other for some reason. <laughs> Until next time, take care. Bye. Oh. You can't think of a reason to be nice? <laughs> <laughs> not offhand. <laughs> this is a motto for you. Yeah. Old hard ass motto. Only fan fiction. Everyone says about a motto. Me and that guy's just. That's what they call it. It's a bastard. Fan fiction in the soul. Or heart. <laughs> sequel. Alice Through the Looking Glass. Audiences didn't want it, Disney didn't need it. Hmm. Isn't that the same with Okey-doke. any of the Disney live action stuff? Uh, I mean, Disney needs some of them, I think. Really? <laughs> what one have you seen? That, that... Oh, I haven't seen any of them. Why would I watch any of them? But I know they're all making Disney loads of money, so... So that's why you're being so nice about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know this article is just saying, like, they're making tons of money on other franchises, and it just kind of didn't have any... It's weird to do it because you're competing with your own content that they can look at it because we're in the digital media where they can, digital age where they can just look up the old movie and directly compare it. Oh, the live action remakes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. Because when they made remakes back in the old days, it's because like, they didn't have access to the movie. Not a so, live action remake of a Disney animated movie, but the thing that annoyed me about the unnecessary um, Willy Wonka remake <laughs> was that the one poem that's in the book that they chose not to do was the one that they did in the Gene Wilder movie, hmm. which was the one on the boat. Right. So there was no direct point of comparison, and I'm pretty sure they did that deliberately. Huh. Well, but wait, they didn't do some of the same, like Oompa Loompa. Those weren't in the book. Those weren't yeah. the book poems. Those were written for the Those movie. Were, I knew there were poems in there the book, poems, but I did not remember they, that they... They yeah. used the book poems in the remake. In the remake. But except for the one on the boat, which okay. is the one of the original book's poems that they used in the Gene Wilder movie. I see. I didn't That's realize. It's kind of weird to think about, because you kind of feel like with like the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie, you'd think it'd be more faithful to the book, and in some ways it is, but... To draw so heavily from the first movie, like in terms of the songs and stuff, is just... so. Do both of the first? It's, like, it's interesting. So do it, both versions rhyme Augustus Gloop with nincompoop? That's what I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>